Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning, Brazos Valley, Central Texas, and Palestine. This is not your usual voice on a Wednesday morning. It's Thaddeus Romanski, your general manager here at Red Sea Catholic Radio. And I am sort of filling in for the good Deacon Mike Beauvais on this Ash Wednesday, 2019. Not because he has so many masses that he has to attend to, but because we got a great opportunity to speak with two scholars who were in attendance at Texas A&M's Veritas Forum last week, and we had to uh, pre-record those interviews in order to uh, respect those people's schedules, and uh, we just decided to go ahead and let me do the opening, and it's going to be a very short opening because those interviews are both... um, good length and time. Our first interview here on this side of the break is going to be Dr. Gloria Frost. She is a philosopher, a Thomist at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And then we're going to be on the other side of the break with Dr. Robin Collins, who is a philosopher, also has training in uh, quantum mechanics and physics. And he was on campus to talk about the fine-tuning argument for God's existence. So we hope you enjoy both of those interviews. Deacon Mike and I kind of tag-teamed it. You're going to hear me with Dr. Frost, and you're going to hear Deacon Mike on the other side with Dr. Collins. We pray that you have a blessed start to your Lent here in 2019, and that this week especially you are mindful of our sin, our need for repentance, our need for salvation, And we hope that you will join us in our Lenten Listening Challenge. Add one hour of Catholic Radio each day during Lent to support you in your disciplines of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So please check out that Red Sea Lenten Listening Challenge. All you got to do is commit to listening to an additional hour of Catholic Radio each day. And if you want to, you know, let people know on social media that you're doing it. Tell tell your friends about it. Ask your priests to do it. Ask your deacons to do it. We can all benefit from it is what we believe. But without further ado, here is Dr. Gloria Frost, and then on the other side of the break, it is Dr. Robin Collins. These are pre-recorded interviews. There's no phone calls today. Thank you so much, everyone, for your steadfast support, and have a great Ash Wednesday. All right, Red Sea Catholic Radio listeners, I am very fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Gloria Frost from the University of St. Thomas, Uh, not in Houston, but up in Minnesota. In fact, she's snowed in. She's joining us from her home today. Gloria, welcome to Red Sea Catholic Radio down here in Texas. Thank you, Thaddeus. I'm sure you're having a much sunnier, warmer day than we are up here. Sounds like it. That's what we figured out in our our pre-interview conversation. You are, uh, it's it's a white white February there for you today, and it's a sunny, sunny day for me today. Yeah, it certainly is. But I, I know that you're you're going to come to Texas A&M. Um, when this airs, you'll have already come and gone, but you were here for the Veritas Forum. Tell us how you got hooked up with the Veritas Forum and kind of what it is generally. Sure. So I'm a professor of philosophy, as you mentioned, at the University of St. Thomas in uh, Minnesota, and I work on the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas and uh, medieval philosophy more generally. And so through my research, I got hooked up with an organization called the Thomistic Institute, and they're out of D.C., out of the Dominican House of Studies. And through generous donations, the Thomistic Institute has uh, started this mission of bringing the message of the Catholic intellectual tradition and the Catholic faith and uh, Aquinas in particular to secular campuses where students can't take uh, in the philosophy department or in a theology department, the kind of courses students can at Catholic universities. So I've been a speaker for them for the last couple of years. 
And they um, uh, do a really great job of finding uh, campuses like Texas A&M that want to bring Catholic speakers to campus to speak. And then the Thomistic Institute has a list of speakers and things they can talk about. And so it was really at the Thomistic Institute that put me in touch with Stephen Arnold and uh, the Catholic faculty organization at Texas A&M for uh, this talk coming up. Fantastic. The Thomistic Institute, we thank you very much for sending Gloria our way. Now, Gloria, I also wanted you to let our listeners know, you know, a little bit about your personal background. Um, if you are a cradle Catholic, a convert, or if you want to discuss your kind of your intellectual development, how did you become a medieval philosopher? What leads someone in 21st century America to pursue that that course of life? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I did grow up Catholic. Uh, my mother is a cradle Catholic, uh, Italian background, and uh, my father is actually Jewish. So I grew up kind of with both of these faith mm -hmm. influences in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, growing up, I, you know, was really kind of passionate about the Catholic faith and uh, understanding it more. But I never really, um, you know, had kind of in my uh, uh, area a lot of resources like to, to study the faith more. And uh, I was a competitive swimmer growing up in Florida and okay. uh, decided at the end of high school that I wanted to go to Catholic University in D.C., not really motivated by, you know, studying Aquinas or anything, but more because I wanted to be on the swim team there and live in Washington and experience the capital and that, you know, kind of different, uh, you know, area to live in. And so when I got to CUA, they had a philosophy requirement. Everyone had to take four philosophy courses. And I took the first of those courses in my freshman year, and I just fell in love with philosophy. And, uh, uh, you know, that's this whole discipline that tries to address fundamental questions we have about our life. Like, why do we exist? What does it mean to live a good life? Do we have souls? Is there a God? And uh, at CUA, a Catholic University in D.C., um, the faculty is really strong in the study of Aquinas. And so in my courses, I learned a lot about Thomas Aquinas and the Catholic intellectual tradition. And uh, by senior year, I was just sure that uh, this was kind of the path that I was supposed to continue on. Mm -hmm. And I got accepted into graduate school at the University of Notre Dame, and I was able to earn my master's and PhD there. And uh, there I had a lot of great uh, professors who um, I was able to continue to learn more about medieval philosophy and Aquinas uh, while I was there. And then um, you know, pretty soon uh, after I started my dissertation, I was really fortunate to get hired uh, at the University of St. Thomas. Uh, and so I came here right away after graduate school and began teaching. Wow. And you've been there for how long now? Almost 10 years. This fall will be 10 years. Fantastic. And I noticed you're, you're an associate professor already. So that that's congratulations to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, what are you going to be... Um, talking about in general when you come to, I'm sorry, what, what's your talk at A&M going to have been about um, for the Veritas Forum? Yeah, so the talk I'm giving um, for the Veritas Forum, it addresses the question of how we can reconcile the goodness of God with all of the evil and suffering we find in the world. Um, so kind of one of the oldest and most persuasive mm -hmm. arguments against the existence of God it's called the problem of evil or suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, if there really is a God as Christians and Catholics and Muslims and Jews say there is, um, you know, all those religions say that God is omnipotent. He has the power to do everything. Um, he's omniscient. He knows everything that's going to happen in the world, even before it happens. And he's supposed to be all good or all loving. Um, so it seems to many people that if there really is a being like that, there can't be evil or suffering in the world. So God, for example, would know about an earthquake before it happens or about, um, you know, a problem in someone's body, uh, uh, you know, before it gets out of hand and takes their life. So the question is, if God knows about all these things before they happen, he has the power to stop them all. And he's really all good and loving. You know, why do we have evil? It seems like God should have eliminated it all. So several people, uh, you know, in that uh, history of philosophy and even many people today say that, you know, just look at this world and all the evil and suffering. It shows that there can't be a God. So my talk is supposed to address that problem from the perspective of Thomas Aquinas. I'll talk a little bit about how Aquinas tries to reconcile God and evil, uh, uh, you know, 
it helps Aquinas helps us to understand evil and suffering uh, in such a way that they don't challenge or go against the goodness and love of God. Wow. Um, so this is not an old or this is not a new problem. In fact, it's a very old question that that human beings have been grappling with. Um, it both probably on the uh, most common level in the everyday life and at the most sophisticated intellectual levels. Let's start yeah, with right. Let's start with define what is evil. What do we mean when we talk about evil? Yeah, so I mean many of us today we think of evil as just, you know, anything that causes us pain or suffering. And a lot of people think about evil as a kind of positive force in the world that, you know, acts on things and inclines them towards uh uh, you know, sin or towards uh uh, uh destruction. And Aquinas and medieval philosophers think about evil a little differently. They say that evil is a privation, which means it's a lack of some good that should be present. So Aquinas and pretty much all medieval philosophers believe that, you know, everything in the world is good because it comes from God. God only makes good things. But God makes some types of good things like us in such a way that it's part of their nature that they can lose goodness. So we, for example, can lose health. We can, uh, 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 you know, lose, um, uh, uh, you know, our good looks, for example. Uh, we can lose a limb in an accident. So we're a type of being that can, you know, gain and lose goodness. And so sometimes through the actions of other things in the world interacting, you know, good creatures lose goods that they should have because of their nature and what they are. And so Aquinas says, you know, that's what evil is. It's this lack of good that should be present. So God makes everything good, but, you know, creatures are just, you know, for a lion to live, it's got to eat something else. It's got to eat a lamb, maybe. And so just the nature of creatures, uh, some things by pursuing their good are going to naturally just interfere with and take goods away from other things. So that's kind of how we get evil, these lacks in the world. Okay, now maybe maybe in the next direction we could go in is help people uh, distinguish for our listeners between natural evil and moral evil. Yeah, so natural evil is, um, you know, types of evil that just follows from the workings of nature. Um, you know, our uh, uh, world, we've got certain types of beings and uh uh, you know, a fire, for example, when it burns, it you know is going to uh, uh, combust and corrupt other things, and that would be just sort of natural evil. You know, a tree burning because of a forest fire, no one chose it or willed it. It's just you know when you get these different types of beings together, um, certain results follow that. You know, at times are destructive for other things. And your example of the lion is a is a natural evil, right? The the lion yeah, eating the, the lion water buffalo. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that would be a natural evil. A moral evil is when we make a sinful choice. Uh, so like rape and murder, those are natural evils. And many people are sorry, those are moral evils. Many people have the question, you know, how is moral evil a privation? When I, uh, uh, you know, make a bad choice that hurts someone else, it seems like that bad choice, you know, really is a positive thing and not a privation or a lack. But what Aquinas says is that, um, you know, every choice we make, we're pursuing a good even that person who murders someone else, they might per be pursuing power or wealth or honor. They're pursuing a good. And the reason their choice is evil is because they pursued that good in such a way that they haven't subordinated it to a higher good. What's missing in their mm. choice is an order of kind of their pursuit of the good to something mm. higher, namely the moral law uh, 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 and the highest good of God. So um, moral evil is evil that comes from our, you know, disordered choices. And Aquinas thought even moral evil could be analyzed as a kind of lack or um, privation as well. Now, you keep using the term um, positive, that some people think of evil as a positive force and uh, that natural evil could be a, a positive action. How are you, you're using positive there a little differently than how it's used in common parlance. Can you kind of explain that a little? Yeah, by a positive thing, I just mean something that's real, that okay. it has being, that okay. it's like a thing. And the reason why it's important to emphasize that evil is not like a real thing, it's rather a lacking, 
is because as Christians, we believe that everything real is created by God. So if you think evil is something real or positive, as I've been saying, something that has being, it's like a thing, then you have this problem, well, is it created by God? Some people in the past, the Manichees uh, have said uh, that, you know, evil is not created by a good God. There's also this evil God that creates evil things. Um, And of course, we don't want to accept that as Christians. There's just one God who's the source of all reality. So it's important to kind of emphasize that evil is not a real thing Mm -hmm. um, or something that has being that's sustained or created by God. Because then, um, you know, we can kind of uh, uh, distance God from the causation and production of evil. Evil is not a thing. It's a lacking of something that should be there. Okay, so then what does, um, what have people tried to do um, in the intellectual tradition with, uh, with this problem of, of evil? Have they tried to say that... Um, well, any evil disproves God or that, well, it's just because there's a certain, once we get past a certain amount of evil in the world, um, that shows that there's no God because he wouldn't let there be that much evil. Or is it because the classic formulation of good, bad things happening to good people? Um, are, are those some of the ways that people have tried to use this problem of evil as an, um, an artifice for uh, atheism? Yeah, all three of those arguments you mentioned have been made in the past and continue to be made today. Um, So what I've been talking about so far, just like evil not being something real, that it's, you know, a lacking, you know, blindness isn't something in your eye, it's a lack of sight. Mm -hmm. That doesn't do anything to solve this other problem of evil of like, why God allow suffering and pain? Um, Because even if evil is not something real, even if it's just a privation, a lack, we still have the question, why does God allow us to lose or lack goods that we ought to have? Shouldn't a good God, you know, kind of like give us back anything that another creature takes away from us through their action? Shouldn't he make us, you know, kind of having everything we need to have at all times? And so Aquinas, what I'll talk about uh, at Texas A&M is kind of that third problem you mentioned, you know, why does God allow good people to suffer? Aquinas has a lot to say about that. Um, So he has a commentary he wrote on the book of Job. And as most listeners Hmm. may be familiar with, you know, Job, it's this book in the Bible about a very just and upright man who God allows uh, uh, to have all kinds of misfortunes happen to him. And so Aquinas, in his commentary on Job, tries to get at, you know, what's going on here? Is this unjust? Uh, Why does God allow these bad things to happen to Job? And there's a couple of points, I think, that are really important that Aquinas emphasizes. Um, So first, he points out uh, that, you know, what is the true good for us? What is the purpose of our existence? It's to know and love and serve God. And these other things that really can, you know, make us enjoy life, like wealth and power and uh, uh, friendships and relationships, they really are good. But it's a higher good, you know, ultimately to live a life that uh, uh, unites us to God uh, in the end, and we're saved and, and uh, enjoy the beatific vision. So Aquinas, uh, uh, in this commentary on Job, argues that sometimes God allows us to lose you know, these temporal goods like our health or even a family member uh, uh, through death, because through that process, through that loss and suffering, we're actually perfected spiritually by it. Um, these kind of sufferings we experience on earth, they can lead us to detach from earthly goods, to focus back on heaven. Uh, they can lead us to um, develop certain moral virtues. Aquinas talks about you know, saints were able to develop uh, uh, more patience uh, through being persecuted, right. uh, uh, you know, by enemies. And, uh, uh, you know, he gives other examples like that, how a suffering can lead to a virtue. So he emphasizes that. And then he talks about this question of justice. You know, is it just for God to allow one of my family members to die, for example, just so I can, through that experience of suffering, you know, be kind of formed in my soul in such a way that I can love more and be united to God. Mm. And Aquinas says, you know, every good thing we have on earth, it's a gratuitous gift from God. 
you know, I have four children and they're a great gift to my life. And, Aqu- and Aquinas says, you know, the, the, those gifts like your children, um, God doesn't owe them to you. It's a huge blessing when he gifts you children or wealth or any of these things, but they're not owed. And so God has no obligation to allow you to keep those blessings for the entirety of your life. You know, you are kind of given a gift, even if it's for a short time, uh, uh, that's gratuitous from God and not owed to you. And so all the more so God doesn't owe you to allow you to have those gifts for the entirety of your life. So he understands that naturally we're going to feel suffering and pain and that there's nothing wrong or sinful in, you know, mourning the death of a loved one or in, you know, feeling sad if you lose your fortune in the stock market, for example. But he says, you know, on an intellectual level, we have to recognize that God hasn't done an injustice to us. It wouldn't Mm. be like, you know, me taking my neighbor's, uh, uh, you know, goods from them, for example. That would be an unjust, an injustice I'm doing to them. But God is a gratuitous giver of everything, so it's not an injustice when he allows something to be taken from us. Gloria, we've already, you know, pretty much we're getting close to exhausting our time together. But um, what you just said there at the at the end where you explained how Aquinas states that the blessings we have, the good things we have are not owed to us from God. I've got to imagine that in the in the modern age, uh, especially in the last couple of centuries, that that has to increasingly be a very difficult thing for people to hear as we have become more and more of a rights-based culture and society, uh, especially in in the West, uh, that, that tells us we have certain things that are, that are owed to us as, uh, as human beings, or at least that's how people conceptualize it. Is that, am I, am I onto something there? Is that maybe part of the reason? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, There's a philosopher at Fordham who I'd recommend on this topic, uh, Father Brian Davies. And uh, he talks about, you know, this idea that, you know, in addition to what you're saying, us being like a rights-based culture, he emphasizes that we've also kind of like um, uh, taken away some of God's transcendence. So we kind of subjected God Mm -hmm. almost to like our framework of rights and obligations. Yeah. And we think of him as like just an ordinary being in our world that owes us things and has one being among many or the greatest being among many. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so he says, you know, we need to kind of recognize that God is just so far above this framework uh, that we have of rights and obligations and that he doesn't have duties to like give us things. But I mean, God really, according to Aquinas, wants what's best for us. He wants us to be happy and he wants us to flourish. And, you know, the only reason he allows suffering for us to lose something, you know, it isn't like he's like saying, ha ha, I didn't owe that to you in the first place. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wants us to have good things. The only reason he allows those things to be withdrawn is, uh, uh, you know, because he sees some greater good on a a spiritual nature will come Mm -hmm. to us through Mm -hmm. allowing that. That's that's also very countercultural um, philosophical framework, even in Aquinas. This idea of these hierarchy of goods. We are not we are not a society that's inclined to much hierarchy in anything. You know, we want a, a leveling of um, of just about everything. So, yeah. th- th- thinking about things in an, in a hier- hierarchical sense is, uh, I think flies in the face of many people's natural um, proclivities, you might say, intellectual proclivities. Yeah, that seems right. I mean, today, most people think that, um, yeah, you can't establish a hierarchy of good. It's just my preference versus your preference. So you prefer, you know, spiritual goods, and I prefer, you know, kind of bodily pleasures, you know, (laughs) who's to say which is higher. And Aquinas thinks that's just you know, backwards that, uh, uh, you know, obviously there are some things that are better for us in the right. long run. And, and, we, and we could have um, a, a separate discussion about, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we could have a separate discussion about how that can be proved according to natural reason that yeah, there really is a hierarchy of, of goods, correct? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think you can know that through natural reason. Well, this has been absolutely uh, just a joy. Uh, I would I might be giving you a call uh, again sometime in the future to have you back on to um, probe some of these topics again. I've really enjoyed our time together this afternoon. 
Yeah, thank you. I'd love to talk to you again. And I hope those listening have also enjoyed it as well. I'm sure they I'm sure they will. And uh, listeners, this has been Dr. Gloria Frost from the University of St. Thomas uh, in the, in the <laughs> yeah, Twin Cities up there, up there in the, the land of the 10,000 lakes. And she's been with us today and she was at Texas A&M. And um, we thank you for listening. We'll be back on the other side. Welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais, and as mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to be talking with Dr. Robin Collins of Messiah College, the Department of Philosophy, who spoke at the Veritas Forum on last Thursday, February 28th, on fine-tuning of the universe as evidence for God. Dr. Collins, welcome to the Red Sea Roundup. Um, thank you. Um, now, this is a fascinating topic to me, the fine-tuning of the universe as evidence of God. But before we get into that, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is um, how you got to this point. Because I looked on the website, and uh, you have was uh, the academic faith learning testimony for yourself. And... Um, you started out with uh, stating that you had many intellectual questions about the Christian faith, and we normally don't see that stated that way, intellectual questions about our faith. How did you arrive where you started thinking on an intellectual level about your faith? Well, I always was kind of intellectually curious. I mean, since I was in junior high, I started reading um, both philosophy and um, books on the nature of matter, and eventually I became a Christian early in college, and I was a physics and mathematics major, and then I took a third major in philosophy, got a scholarship for a fifth year, and the philosophy really helped me, at least gave me the toolkit to begin to address those intellectual questions. And from there, I went on to a degree in, or a, a, a degree program at actually University of Texas at Austin, um, but I was in there for uh, programming physics for two years before I switched to philosophy because those questions were still um, bothering me a lot. And you mentioned that um, you became intrigued by uh, Professor Alvin Plantinga, uh, president of the Society of Christian Philosophers at the University of Notre Dame. How did that motivate you to go in a slightly different direction from physics and mathematics? Well, I was already, you know, um, addressing these philosophical questions. In fact, we, we shared a big office um, at University of Texas at Austin um, when I was in the physics program. And um, there was like four different people in there. One of them was um, ag agnostic, who eventually went on to philosophy. Another was an atheist who was once a Christian. And another was a Mormon, and we spent more and more of our time, instead of doing our physics homework, talking about philosophical issues and religion. So I realized that's where my heart really was. And I was in a theoretical physics program. And unless you're really dedicated to theoretical physics, the job market was bad. It would be hard to get a job. So I figured I better go into philosophy. <laughs> and so I looked at University of Texas at Austin. When I was there, I looked up... Um, um, in Eternity Magazine, they had a list at the end of Eternity Magazine on what they call parachurch organizations, and I noticed the Society of Christian um, Philosophers. So I wrote to them and asked them, you know, about universities that had Christian philosophers out west, because I was originally from out west, and on, they wrote back to me, and the letterhead was Alvin Plantinga, um, President Society of Christian Philosophers, University of Notre Dame. So I put Notre Dame on my radar, which turned out to be the top school for that kind of thing. And so I ended up applying to Notre Dame, and I went there and ended up being um, an advisee of um, Professor Planiga. I don't remember who said it, but um, I read a quotation that said mathematics 
is basically the language of God because it underwrites everything that we see in the universe. That was Gal- Galileo said yeah. that, and Kepler said things like that, and then um, Sir James Sir James Jeans picked up on that and um, saying in the 20th century that it was like the universe was a thought in a mathematical thought in the mind of God. And um, I find it interesting that the two majors that you were pursuing originally, mathematics and physics, how much they play into the whole idea of how the universe is arranged and that it makes sense. Right. Well, originally I wanted to go, you know, I was really interested in philosophy, religion, and wondered why I had gone into physics at all. And, you know, because I was going to focus on philosophy, religion issues. And what ended up happening is that the um, physics background became my greatest strength, which I just want to say a little thing on the side here, because I tell students this, that often I think God works in circuitous ways. So we can't, um, ways that are not direct ways to get somebody to where they are. I would have never planned that particular trajectory. It's very much like people that you know, Newton and others studied the stars, and yet you would have never thought that would have led to all the technology we had or the means of, like, spreading um, the gospel through radio like we have here. So you couldn't have, an, you couldn't have anticipated it ahead of time. And that's with a lot of things like, are like that. And I, just in my personal life, I have found that so often what we think are coincidences or just flukes mm-hmm. that in hindsight become directions that we were put on right. in our life to head in a certain direction that right. we have no clue what right. it was intended to be. And it sounds like when you think about you know your beginnings, mathematics and physics and then philosophy and how they tie together and what you're doing now, there's a trajectory there. Right. I mean, it was only at the end of my graduate, um, um, after I'd actually got my PhD, that I started getting into the fine-tuning stuff. So it wasn't like I was working on it as a graduate student. Now, since we're uh, talking about the fine-tuning of the universe, tell us a little bit about how you see this as being evidence for God. Well, the um, claim of cosmic fine-tuning is that the universe has to be precisely structured in, in um, um, both in its structure of its laws, the fundamental parameters like the strength of gravity, the gravitational constant in G, or like the mass of the proton, or more basically than that, the mass of the quarks that make up the program, um, proton, and so on and so forth in order for life to occur. Um, <clears throat> that's the fine-tuning. And... It seems like, well, how could that have just happened by chance? I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's like one of them is the cosmological constant. The most discussed case in the physics literature is one part in um, 10 to the 120th power, which is one followed by 120 zeros. Or um, it's even much worse, our extent of fine-tuning on the low entropy of the universe and so a lot of people say that's just way, way, way too unlikely for something like that to have occurred by chance. So it suggests um, purpose, cosmic design. And that's talking about the entire universe. But you also made the point that the variables for the existence of human life as we know it right. are so, the variations are so tight that if anything is off, we would not exist as we do or even exist. Yeah, there wouldn't be life forms, what I call embodied conscious agents, anywhere in the universe. It's not specifically just a human life form. Like if you're a Star Trek fan, there wouldn't be Klingons, Romulans. There wouldn't be any of these other life forms or like what you'd see in, you know, Star Wars or something. Um, None of those other kind of life forms would exist. Um, Agents that are embodied conscious can interact with each other. Speak a little bit about your faith and your intellectual pursuits. Your faith, I take it, came first before you started looking into how this relates to the existence of God. Yes. But how do the two balance? I mean, I'm assuming there's a back and forth here that your faith in God is 
supported by your intellectual pursuits, and then your intellectual pursuits are then also helped by your faith. Um, I would say um, both. I mean, so let me just say how the um, faith occurred. I, I originally came to believe, n not based on a lot of intellectual reasons, but I had, uh, it was kind of a heart response, but a lot of questions. And so my, and, and that kind of, I said the philosophy gave me the tools to think about it. And as I matured more, I think the God, you know, God works with each person in different ways. So it's really up to God ultimately that you come to faith and you stay in faith, but God works through natural means. And for me, the natural means were my intellect. So uh, it, it came to a point where, I mean, this took many, many years where I'd have doubts, periods about God, to a point where actually the scientific evidence and just things like the order of nature came to be absolutely compelling to me that there had to be a mind under and uh, a mind and in infinite consciousness sustaining everything so um, at some point the conviction that there is a God um, became very firmly and still I worked on you know intellectually worked on various questions about faith how does evolution fit in um, the problem of evil so I've written on all these kind of different the nature of the soul um, these different areas um, out of this kind of pursuit of faith-seeking understanding, um, as um, Anselm would have said. And then going in the um, other direction, um, so I've already talked about the intellect supporting the faith there. Um, how does the faith per, um, support my own pursuits? Well, I, I always, what kept me in philosophy, I had a background in physics. I'd worked at, on physics lab. I actually worked... Um, in the summer on Reagan's strategic defense initiative during in the 80s. And I was very good at computers, so I could have easily gone on to, um, you know, I grew up in Washington State and gone on to Microsoft. And I actually came from a poor family, so there was this kind of pressure to go do that sort of thing. But I felt a really, really strong calling to pursue philosophy, that it was something I just knew I needed to do. And that... Um, kept me going. That just sense of this was my calling, this was my vocation. And, I mean, it's panned out to be correct. One of the things that has always struck me is that the whole field of science assumes there's an intelligibility about creation, that it makes sense. It's not that, you know, uh, when we look at uh, things that, you know, could have gone this way, could have gone that way. It's just an accident that it happened. But no, there is a progression. There's an intelligibility about what we have. And so, when you're writing uh, about any aspect of um, the precision of the creation that God has made, how do you... When you're talking uh, about the accidents of creation compared to a intelligent, uh, intelligent thought, how do you explain to people that it must be intelligible? It must be looking at the evidence. Okay. Well, let me let me just uh, that kind of question excites me because it's right into my current research project. People had noticed for a long time Albert Einstein, Eugene Wigner, um, commented on the miraculous um, effectiveness of mathematics in the physic physical sciences. Actually, the title of his article was "The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Physical Sciences." Eugene Wigner is one of the major founders of quantum mechanics, which is the, one of the cornerstone. Uh, physics, Albert Einstein had commented, you know, the most, most miraculous thing about the universe is it's intelligible at all. So there's this whole background of people noticing that the laws of nature themselves were sort of user-friendly. Mark Steiner wrote a book on this. Um, he's a philosopher at university um, in, um, in Israel. And so what I did by about 2010, the idea occurred to me that why don't we test this thesis? Look at the fundamental parameters of physics, like the numbers governing, like, you know, like I said, the mass of the quarks or the, um, 
the strength of gravity is given by G. Let's see what happens when we move them around. If it was really set up to be intelligible and discoverable, we might expect that if we change those parameters, that the tools we use for discovering the universe would get worse, like on an ordinary level, like light microscope. And what I started finding, my first case of this was that um, the strength of electromagnetism, if you slightly increased it, um, you couldn't have open wood fires, and hence you couldn't smelt metals, and hence you wouldn't have any technology. And if you decrease it, you take a huge hit on the light microscope, gets a lot less resolving power, um, electric transformers become quickly very inefficient, um, uh, the um, electric motors likewise, so our whole electrical civilization is really dependent on the, that that fundamental parameters in a small range. Then I started looking at other ones, and it was a consistent pattern. So the last 10 years, about, have been pursuit of that. I'm pretty much close to being done with that project, but I got a major, um, a small grant and a major grant from the Templeton Foundation to pursue that. So that gives you the quantitative evidence that it's really, it's not just our subjective impression that's really intelligible, that there's this quantitative evidence that it is. There's also the whole issue of quantum mechanics, which you can't take the math. Quantum mechanics tells us that, in some sense, the underlying cosmic code of the universe is mathematics, that a very deep sort of mathematics of um, the complex numbers and Hilbert spaces and things like that. And so it looks through and through mathematical. And that's why um, Sir James Jeans made that comment. It was shortly after the discovery of quantum mechanics. So I just think science actually offers, for me, the hoarder of the world and um, the quantum mechanics, which I've studied a lot, and the fine-tuning offer just a very, very powerful case for the existence mm -hmm. of God. I don't see... So me, the science gives us actually our strongest support, um, and which is the opposite of what is commonly thought. But often yes. that's how things are. They're opposite of what people think. Well, and this is for me <clears throat> so disturbing is that our young people are told that you don't need a religion because you have science rather than being told that science actually supports religion. religion. And, and that's, that science has a limit. It only it explains how the universe works. And we should always look to science for that. Yes. But... It doesn't explain why there is a universe at all and has this structure. And science cannot, they, they've attempted to touch that mm -hmm. question, but they've really made no progress on that issue. Well, I read a wonderful paper just on uh, genetics, on the fact that, you know, when you look at genetics as a language, you have to ask yourself, where did the language come right. from? Because not only do you need a language in the body to power everything, you need the enzymes in place to read the language right. in order to make it work. And so to say that's accidental, there's no such thing as an accidental language. Well, they would try to say it was a result of chemical evolution. I do think the origin of life presents kind of severe problems. Yes. Uh, you might be able to accept evolution from then on, right? but the uh, origin, you kind of got a chicken and egg problem because yes. you need the DNA to have the cell but you need the cell to reproduce the DNA. Right. And so, uh, again, there are so many things out there that if you look at them without a bias against God, right. that they specifically point to the existence of, of God, of God as creator and right. outside of what we know in the physical world, because right. he can't be part of the world. And so, you know, that whole field of science, I think, is kept from our young people as they're... Yeah, I know. I kind of, it's amazing. It's almost like there's a fad that... Uh, it's almost like a fashion of the day to exclude God because it really there's no reason to do that. I, I suppose there's a sort of... There's a sort of tension with like the theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. You might have, you know, how, but it brings up a kind of problem of evil is the only real thing it brings up. Right. You know, and, but other than that, there's no reason to exclude God. It's a misconception of, of what theism was all about to begin with. It's kind of confusing theism, um, belief in God was Zeus or some other God mm -hmm. that was supposed to explain natural occurrences. 
which is a caricature of the entire tradition. You won't, you'll find Aquinas, Augustine, all of them stressing, you know, God creates the world according to natural laws, even though they didn't know what the laws, right. deep laws were. And it wasn't God miraculously intervening all the time to explain natural phenomena. You explain them in terms of laws, and then it was the whole structure that required uh, um, God. So it's a really misunderstanding of the entire theistic, uh, popular misunderstanding and the whole thesis of like um, um, White, I forgot it's a black guy on his first name, he was a president of Princeton and, and one other person who wrote the book, um, The Warfare Between Science and Religion, um, which was really recognized now as really, really bad history. No and footnotes that went nowhere. <laughs> and um, so historians of science, that's almost unanimous that this was bad history. There wasn't this kind of warfare, but mm -hmm. it has unfortunately stuck in the popular mind. Are you working on a book to explain the results of this? Yes. I mean, so I'm working on, it's going to actually take about two books to do it because there's a set of parameters, like I mentioned, the gravitational constant that... Um, the fine structure constant um, and other parameters <clears throat> um, on one level. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff on the, on the level of particle physics. And so um, I don't even know if I can do both of them in one book, then I'm going to do a popular book on the matter. So it's an extension of the fine tuning argument, but it avoids, um, it cannot be explained away like by a multiverse, which is the usual attempt uh, against the standard fine-tuning argument. So it has a lot of power in itself. And it shows that um, this fine-tuning shows that it was part of God's direct providential purposes that we develop science, and, uh, and which is the paradigm of reason, so that the use of reason is really um, important. It's kind of stamped into the universe that we do that. And I have always felt that the use of reason is one of those gifts of from God. The, mm -hmm. the fact that you know we have a questioning mind, and so I think it's uh, in, in, uh, important for us to remember that sometimes just asking the question "why" right. is a gift from God because it makes us seek the truth and seek God. Oh, and you have—I mean—the the greats of the faith, like in the Old Testament, Moses, they will, you know, challenge God. Mm -hmm. And Abraham did, you know, well, what about this? Why are you going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. And what if there's 50 righteous people? So there's a whole biblical tradition of um, questioning God and using reason. And, and there's not places where God says, don't question. Right. Uh, one more question. Uh, we're nearing the end. But now... In the field of science, we find that a lot of the universities are staffed by people that don't see science as being related to God. And a lot of them are atheists. Some of them are agnostic. When you have conversations with people in your uh, work, how often do you find a resistance to the idea of God without actually well, it's outside my own college because mm -hmm. right. we're at a Christian college. Yes. But there, um, a lot of people like scientists. They don't they don't think much about the philosophical questions. So um, Francis College, you know, who's had the uh, um, genome project. That's what he said where he was at until he read C.S. Lewis and looked at, you know, where does our sense of morality um, come from? So you you. And there is, honestly, there's often a sense of arrogance because, in, especially in physics, because we can do the precise um, rigorous equations, therefore we know everything and we don't need philosophy anymore. Um, so you find that sort of resistance. And then there's this whole popular part where you have, you know, young earth creationism. They see that it's all played out in the popular media. So it seems like Christianity and science are in conflict. But you're only looking at, as Alvin Plantinga said, at a superficial level. Um, there's a superficial conflict between Christianity and science, let's say, in and if you take a literal interpretation of Genesis, but at a very a deeper level, they're deeply supportive of each other. It was because a lot of historians have said this. It was because of Christianity that you thought the universe was created by an intelligent being, and um, so the, we could use reason to find out about the universe. Where at the same time we couldn't just rely on reason it's alone, as the Greeks tried to do. 
we had to do experiments because it was both a reasonable creation and a free creation by a creator who had free will. So you actually, to see what the pattern, the true underlying pattern was, you had to go and do experiments. So it ended up founding. There's a reason why modern science occurred in um, Christian Europe. Uh, I want to thank you for being here and doing this interview. I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I find this absolutely fascinating. Um, when you um, publish your books, um, and you ha have several that you have published mm -hmm. already, uh, what sort of target audience do you see for buying your books? Uh, would they make sense to our average listener? If well, the one, the one on the um, fine-tuning for discovery of the scientific evidence will be at a more technical level. So be for somebody who's in an, um, an intelligent lay audience or familiar with science. But then the popular one would be an attempt for um, a general audience. So I have to do the technical one first because you have to just lay out the, um, the evidence that's there and that will require more or less experts in science to evaluate. Very good. And um, again, I want to thank you very much for being here with us. Uh, I want to thank you for doing the Veritas Forum because it's an opportunity for people to hear some of the uh, things that we normally don't talk about in our faith, uh, like the connection to uh, science and mathematics. And um, I want to remind all our listeners that um, next week we will be having our host Gene Wilhelm here, and he will be hosting the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. And until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. Yeah.